All right, Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like this, his who treads in in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. If if there were one aspect of the character of God, one way that God is described in the Bible that you would say is the hardest for people to accept, what aspect of God would that be? (laughs) And everyone could tell me... (laughs) It's his wrath. It's his anger, isn't it? That's the hardest thing for people to accept. And it will always be the hardest thing for people to accept. It's easy to accept a loving God. It's much harder to accept a God who is angry, a God who is wrathful. There's nothing less popular in our day and age than a God who is wrathful and a God who is angry. In fact, You might even say that God's wrath is embarrassing to many believers. It is almost like an elephant in the room. Like you want to somehow avoid it so that you don't bring up this really sore subject, right? That's sadly the case oftentimes. Yet if you look at God's word, you will find that his wrath is one of the most important truths that God is passionately trying to communicate to us. God's wrath and his anger is without a doubt one of the major themes of scripture. God is obviously passionate for us to understand this aspect of God. For instance, you could look back at Isaiah, we've gone a long ways in Isaiah, haven't we? <laughs> We're almost done with a book. It's crazy. Chapters 1 through 39, the majority of those chapters was the wrath of God. Uh, that's the majority of Isaiah. The majority of the whole book is wrath, when you think about it. Is that surprising that there is so much in the Bible that tells us about the wrath of God. And in fact, you'll find that Jesus talked often about the wrath of God. And that is probably surprising to many believers as that is often what we don't talk about. So if the wrath of God is so prevalent in scriptures, how do we manage to get around it so easily? How do we avoid it so well? And I think it's important to step back and look at what is going on with us. (laughs) Why do we often avoid it so easily? 
And I think the reasons are because we either ignore it, because it's all over the place, or we minimize it. We, we focus on those verses that we love and kind of peruse quickly through those that are more challenging, or we try to explain it away or rationalize it because it just doesn't seem to fit our narrative. It doesn't seem to fit our idea of what God should be like. And so we, we, we're kind of uncomfortable with it, and we don't know how to fit it into our understanding of God. Sometimes I think that is the case with us. And you don't need to go far to prove what I'm saying is right. <laughs> just look at the TV preachers. Is it TNN, I think? Something like that. <laughs> um, and, and, and look at how often they address the wrath of God. And I think you would find that they hardly ever address it. And did you know that it is just as wrong to mention bad things as to not mention the important things? It can be just as wicked and evil to keep things out as it is to say, bad th- as it is to say wrong things. And so I warn you about what you watch on TV, (laughs) to be careful. The passages or the scriptures that we're looking at today deal with the wrath of God, and it addresses the wrath of God head on. They're in fact really violent. If you were to give this passage a, uh, a rating, you would say R for violence. This is incredibly violent. It's gory. But I want you to see your great need to understand God's anger and wrath. It is for your well-being, your eternal well-being, for your joy and for your comfort that you understand the wrath of God. The righteous, perfect wrath and anger of God is part of his perfect character. It's part of his perfect, glorious, magnificent character. And we need to understand it. His wrath is essential to your health, your joy, and your safety, and your salvation. And, and you know, we, we, were, we were just singing the song in those words, the only undefeated, or something like that, is <laughs> one, one of the phrases we said. And I was thinking, amazingly, the wrath of God is the, the means for your fearlessness. If you're to ever be at peace in life, it can only come through properly understanding the wrath and anger of God. And I know that sounds strange, but I think this passage will help you understand how the wrath and anger of God is for your salvation if you're trusting in Him. It's going to bring you to safety as he is going to defeat all the wickedness and the evil in this world, that is essential for the kingdom of God to be established. And so our safety and our peace and our comfort depends on a God who is wrathful and a God who is angry. But I'm getting way ahead of myself here. So what are you going to do with the wrath of God today? I pray that you listen and that you behold your God. So we begin with the image of a watchman who's standing on the wall keeping watch as they're supposed to be doing, (laughs) right? It doesn't say watchman here, but there are a number of clues that indicate because that's what a watchman does. (laughs) He stands there watching (laughs) and he's protecting the city and guarding the city. And uh, 
and he asks questions that would give us the indication that this is a watchman. So if a watchman were sitting on the wall or standing on the wall, keeping watch and guarding, what might he be watching for? And you have to remember that the city was in constant danger of being under siege, right? They were, they were people around them that wanted to defeat them, that wanted to conquer them. There were enemies all around them. And you could say that the truth of enemies being around us has not changed, has it? There are enemies all around us, even today. Evil is still present in this world. And so we are in a very similar situation. That's what we see here. So the watchman would not only be protecting against intruders, but he would be watching for something very important to happen. Do you know what he'd be watching for? He would be watching for the fulfillment of God's promises. He would be watching for the Messiah to come, for the King to come and bring victory for the people. And so that's what the watchman is out there watching for in this passage. He is longing for God's kingdom to come in its fullness. And he's out there watching for the king to come and bring them victory. So the watchman here observes someone coming towards the city. And he asks, who is this? Who is it that's approaching the city? I mean, that's his job, right? He's supposed to know. He's supposed to watch out. He's supposed to keep guard. And the watchman doing his job begins to observe this person who's coming and approaching. And what does he say? He describes this person as coming from Edom in Bozrah. And Edom, by the way, um, the Edomites were the people who came from Esau. That's where they originated from. And Bozrah was the capital city of Edom. And we will talk more about this later on, but I just want you to understand that this, this watchman is, is taking notice of where he's coming from, because it's important where he comes from. And then he notices from a distance that he is clothed with crimson. He has this red colored garments. And we're not told immediately, but this just stands out to this watchman. I mean, he's looking at a distance probably at this point, and he sees this red, this clear red color. And we will find out that his clothes are red because they are stained from the blood of the battle that he has been in. The blood has splashed from the battle, from the great battle that he has been upon. The gory battle has splashed on his garments and he is all red. He also notices something about his clothing, that he is clothed in splendid apparel. Now this is dignified clothing. This is something that people who are in great authority, people who are in high position would wear. And it's immediately identified, even from a distance, that he is clothed, clothed in splendid apparel. You know, you might see like a train from someone's garments going way back, right? Um, just something that might indicate that this person is in high esteem and authority. And then he says, he notices that he is marching in the greatness of his strength. This person is powerful. He's strong. Whatever he has been up to, he is not winded a bit. He is not tired. <laughs> he is striding as one who is victorious and powerful and mighty 
and who is not at all weary or tired from anything. He has the swagger of a mighty man. Perhaps his head is raised up, you know, as he walks towards the city gates. Suddenly, the approaching figure responds, he answers, and he says, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And so he identifies himself in a very strange way. Whoever says, it is I, <laughs> what kind of, a, what kind of a identification is that? But that's the name for God, isn't it? That's the self-identifying name for God. He's saying, I am God. I am He. It is I. I have come. God is approaching. And what does He want you to know about Him? Of all the things that God could have said that characterizes Him, what is important here? God wants you to know oddly enough to our ears, that he speaks in righteousness. I mean, of all the powerful displays of someone's characteristics, who would ever point out that they speak, right? That seems like the weakest thing that we could imagine anyone doing that's powerful and mighty. But for God, he takes perhaps the weakest point of us speaking, and he shows that he is powerful, <laughs> overpowerful, that his greatest weapon is what we would consider perhaps our weakest point, which is our mouths. And by the way, it is a powerful weapon, but I'm just saying, whoever speaks of their power and their might in being their words, but he says he speaks. And he doesn't just speak, he speaks righteousness, doesn't he? He speaks truth. He speaks what is true and right. And notice that God has made himself known to us from Genesis 1, verse 3, through revelations, through speaking, through speaking to us. That's how God has made himself known to us throughout scriptures. He speaks. He makes his character. He reveals himself known to his creatures through speaking words. And these very words, are his very words are the ones who spoke the world into existence. They are powerful words that he speaks. And notice that the idols, do you remember the one problem, or the, the one problem, one of the many, the main problem with the idols is that they said, but they didn't do. And they, they couldn't speak either, but if they could speak, they couldn't do it. <laughs> and, and God, he says, I will tell you beforehand what's going to happen, and it will come to pass. When God says he's going to bring judgment, he brings judgment. When God says he's going to save, he saves. God speaks, and things happen. <laughs> He is powerful with his voice. He speaks in righteousness. God finally describes himself as mighty to save. He is mighty. He's not, he's not just able to save. He is mighty to save. He is not just a savior, but he is the mighty savior. Do, do you remember what the watchman was waiting for? Do you remember he was watching in order to warn the city against invaders, but he was also watching primarily for the king to come, for the Messiah to come? Do you, can you see who it is who's approaching here? This is the Messiah. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one who's going to bring us victory. Wow. 
He's going to crush our enemies. This is the Messiah. He is God with us. He is the one who speaks in righteousness. He is our mighty Savior. This is none other than our Messiah. And it's confirmed in verse 5. We read that the arm of the Lord brought salvation. Jesus is the arm of the Lord. He is the one who brings salvation. So now we know who it is who's approaching. So the watchman asks, Why are your garments red? Why are your garments red? In other words, he's saying, What did you just do? What did you just accomplish? Where did you just come from doing, right? And it appears that as, the, as this person, this, this divine warrior comes forward, that he's closer up, and so he can tell that these aren't normal colored clothing. This is stained. And so he asks, were you, um, were you, were you st- stamping on the, on the grapes, treading the grapes? And, and so back in those days, you would take off your shoes and your socks and you would, you would uh, trample on the grapes and you'd make, uh, you'd make grape juice and wine by doing that. And, uh, and it, would, it would just be trampled underneath your feet. And, and if you were wearing a, a robe, but you probably wouldn't, <laughs> it, would, it would cover it completely with red, as you could imagine. It would become completely red from the, the grape juice that would come up and splatter all over it. And so he wonders, is that where you come from? And the answer that the warrior gives, why his apparel is red, is not that he has been trampling grapes, but rather that he has been trampling his enemies, and their blood has splattered all over him. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath, and the lifeblood splattered on my garments, and stained all my apparel. In other words, he has been taking vengeance on his enemies. And the stains are the blood of the people he has trampled and who have splattered on his garments. Now, is this really an accurate picture of Jesus? Uh, This isn't the Jesus we often hear about, is it? Can he really be described as this grotesque, victorious warrior that we see here? I thought he was loving and gentle and kind. And the answer is, well, yes, he is gentle and loving and kind. But he is also the great warrior who fights in behalf of his glory and for his people. In other words, Jesus is not just the Lamb of God who takes away sin. He's also the Lion of Judah who defeats his enemies. He is either your greatest comfort or he's your greatest fear. He's either your greatest hope or your greatest enemy. And there is no other option besides those two. Listen to the picture of Jesus as the divine warrior in Revelation 19, verse 11 through 16. And notice some people say that God has changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament, but that is not at all true. (laughs) God has not changed one bit from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Listen to what it says here. Because they say he's the, he's the angry God in the Old Testament, he's the gracious God in the New Testament. That's not true. Listen to Revelation 19, 11 through 16. And uh, I cut out parts of it, but I have most of it, some of it. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. 
The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Notice the same language there. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of, of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we need to ask the question, who does Jesus need to add to his army in order for him to win this victory? Who does Jesus require to join him if he's going to have victory over his enemies? I mean, certainly he needs some help here, right? Well, what's amazing about this description is there's one really, I mean, there's just a few verses here, but there's one aspect of this battle that the divine warrior fights that is emphasized. I mean, I mean it, is, it is emphasized in these verses very clearly. We're supposed to get that. And that is that he does it alone. In verse 3, I've trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. In verse 5, the second half, my own arm brought me salvation and my wrath upheld me. He alone is able to bring the fullness of his judgment and his wrath. He does this work completely alone by his own power and his own strength. And this is the way God chooses to work in creation. He does it alone. He is going to get the glory. The full glory is going to go to God for his work of creation. The full glory is going to go to God for his work of salvation right? He's going to do it alone. He works salvation by his own might and his own power. The only thing we add to salvation is the need to be saved. (laughs) God is going to bring judgment completely alone. No one is going to help him bring judgment. He is going to accomplish it by his own power and his own strength, and he is going to get the glory for it. And I also want to remind you of this picture of the approaching divine warrior in verse 1. Notice that he has done this alone, and he approaches, and what is he like? He's not tired at all. He has just defeated every single one of his enemies, and he's not tired. He's actually energized. He is roaring to go. His head is lifted high. He is in the most glorious position, dignified as ever, having defeated all his enemies. That's amazing. Not one ounce of a loss of strength and power in conquering every enemy. So as we look at the emphasis here on the wrath and the judgment, this passage can look like it's kind of out of place, right? From the last few chapters we looked at. It seems to stand in stark contrast, even contradiction, to the immediate preceding passage that expressed God's great love for his people in promising them salvation. It appears that this passage is changing direction and going somewhere else. But I want to assure you that that is not the case. In reality, God's wrath is not at all contrary or contradiction to his great loving promises to his people. They are actually one in the same. So the question is, how is this not a contradiction? How is this not veering in a different direction? You see, even after God gives his great promises, you have to remember that the earth is still filled with evil. And that evil is a threat or a barrier to receiving the goodness of God's promises for his people. 
All the evil in this world is a barrier and a threat to us receiving the fullness of the kingdom of God. This evil stands in the way of God's, of God's goodness being fully experienced by God's people. And so here, God is simply continuing to express his love for his people. God's response to evil here confirms his promises and his goodness to his people that he will fulfill in his future promises. This means there is nothing to fear because God is unconquerable. There's not even a a, a battle here. (laughs) There's nothing to fear. There's no competition. This is unfair. God is utterly superior to every foe and enemy that might stand against God's promises for his people. You could say that God's wrath fits perfectly in line with the context of God's love for his people and his blessings of salvation. So rejoice in your victorious king. How dishonoring would it be if your victorious king came in there and he said, oh, Man, I'm, I'm so sad, <laughs> right? When your victorious king comes in, you're going to rejoice and praise him and glory in him. Remember when they went through Egypt, the, they crossed the, the Red Sea? I remember watching a kid's video on that. And after the Egyptians were drowned in the Red Sea, in the video, they were sad. They were sad. I remember thinking, that's not how it went. That's, they were rejoicing. They were singing. Our God is victorious. I want us to look at these verses and ask some questions to help us understand the wrath of God better, which we'll have to go through pretty quickly here. There are a number of important questions about the wrath of God that we need to have answered. Who is God angry at? You know, we spent a little bit of time looking at how um, Edom is the place where he came from. Now, Edom represents the enemies of God. Edom is representative of those who stand against God and his purposes. They were in constant battle and antagonistic against God's people throughout the Old Testament. And even Esau in the New Testament stands for those who are opposed to God, where the Edomites came from. They represent the enemies of God, kind of like Babylon, but it has a little different nuance, right? And so when it mentions it here, all it's saying is God is going to defeat all of his enemies represented by Edom. That's what it means. And so the world is divided in two cities, right? Those who are under God's protection and those who are reserved for God's judgment. And each of us are living in one city or the other city. You're either a member of God's city or you stand contrary to God and opposed to him in the city of man. The Bible says that failure to respond with belief to the good news of salvation, of repentance, failure to repent and believe in him, not only leads you to the wrath of God, but is rebellion in itself. Notice that the Bible, yes, it gives an offer. Praise God. What a loving and gracious God. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be saved. What a gracious and kind God. And we, we, we plead with you. Turn to Christ for salvation. But notice that it's not just an offer. It's a command. Uh, in Acts uh, Paul said, God commands everyone everywhere to repent. Commands, that's a command. And so your refusal to repent, every time you refuse to repent, is the very act of rebellion against God. Every moment you refuse to repent is rebellion. And the Bible says that every moment you do not repent, you are storing up for yourself more and more and more wrath. You are putting more of God's wrath into your account. 
That's what Paul says in Romans 2, verse 5. So my question for you is, which city do you belong to? And the simplest way to examine yourself is to determine who you love. The Bible says we're to examine ourselves. Do you love God? Do you have a heart that's being transformed to love the things that God loves? Or do you love yourself supremely? And do you have no love for God? Perhaps merely a love for your own imagined and created God in your own mind. He was not God at all. So how angry is God at these people? Is he really this angry? And really, we don't even need to expound on this aspect. It is absolutely clear that God is very angry. It doesn't even need to be mentioned. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. You tell me how angry is God portrayed in this passage. You see, if God is, if, if we are no longer in the age of favor, in the day of favor, and now it is the day of wrath, God is 100% wrathful. He is no longer gracious. And that means he is 100% wrathful at his enemies. There is coming a day when there will no longer be the opportunity to receive the grace of God. And God will pour out his wrath and his judgment. And in that day, God will be 100% wrathful to his enemies. And so God is very angry at his enemies. Why would God be so graphic and so disgusting? Does he really need to be this way? And everything God says to us, he says to us because it's helpful. We need to understand that. He doesn't say anything to us just to give our emotions rattled. He says he, he raises our emotions to the proper level that they need to be raised to. And right here, God is trying to move us by the reality of his judgment. We need to be moved by the reality of the coming judgment. And so to say that this is mean is actually to get it the very opposite way around. This is loving. It is mean not to say it this way. It is unloving not to portray the truth in the reality of the way it is. We are the unloving people when we withhold these truths from those around us. God is aiming to move you by this truth in the direction of Christ Jesus. And you will never move in the direction of Christ Jesus, who is your greatest good, if you are never aware of the reality of the wrath of God. How are we to love people if we don't speak the truth and if we always avoid it and if we always go around it and minimize it and justify it as if it's the elephant in the room, <laughs> right? Why is God so angry at these people? He's angry because he is perfectly righteous and his creatures have turned away in the opposite direction towards unrighteousness. To say God is righteous means that he is Defi he defines what is right. It means he is righteous. It means he does what is right in everything he does. It means he loves what is right. And we have gone in the opposite direction. We define our own right differently than he does. We are not right. We don't do what's right. And we hate what is right. 
We see this most clearly in verse 5. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Is Jesus saying here, is, is he saying here that he was looking for help and he couldn't find it? Is that what he's saying? Is he saying, I needed some help and I couldn't find any? No. That's not at all what it's saying here. He is saying people should have acted righteously. He is saying there is a problem that no one loves righteousness. And God is abhorred by unrighteousness. The holy God is always abhorred, appalled, whenever there is unrighteousness and a lack of love for, un- for what is right. God is not taken by surprise. He's not surprised here. It's not like he's like, no way, <laughs> right? So what does he do? He acts in anger that comes directly from his heart. His righteous anger comes from his heart. Some people say it's the peripheral of God, that it's not really acting from his heart when he acts in anger. But listen to what it says. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. It is not detached from God. It comes from his inner being, at the very core of who he is. And this means that he will always bring vengeance toward all that is unrighteous. That one day he will settle all accounts. Maybe not immediately, but he will. And this is why we can count on God's anger being perfect. No favoritism, always fair, never inappropriate, like our anger often is. But there's a second reason why he is so angry that is connected to the first. This is really important to understand. This is directly connected to his righteousness. He is so angry at the unrighteous way his people have been treated. And therefore, he is motivated to redeem his people by defeating their enemy. Notice we read, and the year of my redemption has come. God's righteousness, his righteous wrath is motivated for the redemption of his people. And it is his righteousness to redeem his people. God has bound his honor and his name up to the, in the salvation of his people. He would be unrighteous not to save his people. And does God love righteousness? Does God love righteousness? Yes, he loves righteousness. And so you can be assured that your God is going to save you and that he is going to bring salvation. He's going to defeat your enemies and he's going to bring you safely into his kingdom. Praise God for his amazing grace. And the point of this passage is to give hope to his people that he will save them. He is mighty to save. Notice that phrase. His own arm brought salvation. And his enemies will soon learn, as Saul did on his road to Damascus, that God's people and God are one. <laughs> that you persecute one and you are colliding and, uh, and clashing with the other. Right? We obviously don't see God's fullness of his wrath, but one day we will. And the question is, when will this fullness be expressed? When will we see Isaiah 63 verses 1 through 6 in its fullness? And the answer is, we don't know when that day is. You see, the day is coming. Today is the day of salvation, isn't it? Today is the day of salvation. We see a little bit of the wrath of God around us. And the world sees it as permission to continue to walk in our evil way. But one day, that day of favor will be over and the day of vengeance will be upon us. In that day, there will be no more grace, no more mercy offered, and God will unleash his fury without mercy. 
Listen to Revelation 6, 15 through 6 and 16. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. This means you don't have to fear that anyone will ever get away with anything. God said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. We don't have to worry. We can trust God, he will make all things right. So how should we respond to this in conclusion? (laughs) Well, as God said to Isaiah, the most important thing is that we have the proper fear in life. Listen to these words. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. There's a lot of conspiracies out there today, right? And a lot of things that people are fearing. And do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall regard as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Compared to God, there is nothing ever to fear. There is no fear apart from God. He is the only one to fear. Yet hell has become a joke to many, an embarrassment to others. In reality, it is neither. Hell is an eternal reality. It's eternal separation from the living God. There is nothing as terrible and as awful as hell. And this is why Jesus never minimized or soft-pedaled God's wrath, but spoke of it clearly, and so should we. We need to face it and acknowledge it, never minimize it or ignore it. Richard Baxter, from his book, The Saint's Everlasting Rest, describes our failure to warn people this way. He says, There is a secret infidelity prevailing in men's hearts. Did we verily believe that all the unregenerate and unholy shall be eternally tormented? How could you refrain from speaking or avoid bursting into tears when we look them in the face, especially when they are near and are dear friends? Thus doth secret unbelief, the unbelief there is not their unbelief, but our own unbelief in the reality of hell, consume the vigor of each grace and duty. O Christian, if you did verily believe that your ungodly neighbor's wife, husband, or child should certainly lie forever in hell, except that they be thoroughly changed before death shall snatch them away, Would not this make you address them day and night till they were persuaded, were it not for this cursed unbelief? Our own and our neighbor's souls would gain more by us than they do. You see, the answer is to run to Jesus and to tell people to run to Jesus. There's only one answer, and that's to repent and believe in God. Bow your knee to the living God who brings salvation. There's only one salvation. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He is the only way to escape the wrath of God. Amazingly, God has been trampled on for his people. His blood has been splattered for his people. He has been treated as if he was Edom for his people. Praise God for his grace. God treated his son as if he had committed our sin so that we might be treated as if we had committed his righteousness. What a great salvation we have today. And we have the hope that God will conquer every enemy that stands in our ways. And there's nothing that can stand against him. It is not even a battle. (laughs) He will defeat every enemy. If you're right with God, then you're in the greatest condition possible. The greatest words you can ever hear is this. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And one day you will hear those words. He will come 
and he will bring with him the fullness of everything he has accomplished for his people on the cross. He will never again be angry at you. He will discipline you today, but he'll never be angry at you and punish you in anger. God will deliver you, and his own righteousness demands it. Think about this. The lamb will fight for you. He is for you. Praise God. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, I pray, God, that you would bring a sense of the awareness of the coming judgment of God onto our hearts. Lord, I pray that we would examine our hearts, Lord. This passage is intended to bring comfort to believers, but we cannot pass over the reality that there might be some in this room who are not right with the living God. And so I pray that even this morning that you would save them from their horrible, from the horrible destruction that awaits them. Lord, the wrath of God is already hanging over their heads. And I pray that you would save them today. May they repent and believe in the good news of your salvation. And Lord, I pray for believers, as this passage is meant and directed primarily for believers, it is to give us comfort and peace that we have a God who is victorious. And so I pray that we would rejoice in our great Savior. We live in the in-between times. We mourn with those who are perishing. But we rejoice at your salvation at the same time, and that's hard for us to understand, but we do. We rejoice that our Savior is our victorious King, and you will conquer every enemy. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.